Welcome to the Wellness Champions Network podcast. I'm host Sarah McGuinness. The Wellness Champions Network is a group of leaders from around the globe who are passionate about well-being. In the network, we learn, share and connect with colleagues and well-being experts alike. We believe that by working together, we can build a happier, healthier world where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. In this podcast, we're joined by Catherine Jackson, author of Resilience at Work. Catherine's book is based on her own experience of working in extreme circumstances in post-earthquake Christchurch and is enhanced by her collaboration with leading resilience experts from around the world. Building resilience will be a critical part of recovery from the COVID-19 crisis. It will be essential for leaders as they navigate the business challenges ahead and for employees as they forge their path through the turbulence of the changing world. In this interview, Catherine shares the keys to building resilience based on the findings of her book and shares what lessons we can take away from the recovery process following the Christchurch earthquakes, knowing that the path ahead will require leadership and a sense of sustained well-being. So welcome. The first thing I wanted to ask you was what is your definition of resilience? How would you define resilience? Yeah, yeah, it's one of the, you know, it's one of those words. I like to think of it as a bit of a, um, a Marmite word. Uh, you know, people seem to be either really drawn to it as an idea or quite repulsed by it as an idea. So I think, you know, the definition is, is in, in my view, is always going to change and adapt depending on the circumstances that you're talking about it in. Um, but I think what it actually boils down to is how do we handle ourselves when everything goes pear-shaped? do we fall to the pieces do we grit our teeth and just keep going no matter what at whatever cost um you know it's it's ultimately about um i think adapting well in this in the face of significant stress um, and i think you know what what that often conjures up for us is this sense that we have to wait for significant stress to happen before we test our resilience levels and I think I'm on a bit of a mission in this life to to explore that concept with people because I don't think I don't think it's as clear cut and as simple as saying we wait for something to happen and then we test our resilience. And what we know from learning in Christchurch and from learning from researchers around the world is that your your resilience is something that ebbs and flows every day. I might wake up in the morning with a really strong sense of being able to cope with whatever the day is going to throw at me. Um, but by lunchtime, I might find that something's happened to me that it was unexpected. And so my resilience levels can dip. Um, I might then get home in the evening um, and find that, um, you know, something's gone wrong at home. I mean, gosh, I've got an eight-year-old boy. God knows what I'm going to come home to some evenings. So, um, so the, at the end of the day, I think resilience is something that's a very personal concept. Um, and it's something that science is still exploring. I know your lovely intro introduced me as an expert. I always have a bit of a reaction with that. Um, the experts really are the researchers and the scientists in this space. Um, what I love doing is, is looking at what's current and how can we take some of the current learnings and turn them into really practical, pragmatic actions that we can implement in workplaces. And I know from your book, there was sort of, four components you thought were quite important in terms of pulling those out for resilience. What are those four components? Yeah, so um, so when when I was working on the book, so the, the book was a bit of an accident, to be perfectly honest. We, in, in Christ, 
did um, after the uh, sort of after the initial earthquakes, the construction industry came together to look at how on earth we were going to take on this mammoth task of rebuilding the city. Um, and what we quickly realised was that we were going to be working in a kind of hot house of stress. Um, you know, we were going to have um, teams of people coming together who had previously been competitive who were now having to collaborate. Um, we knew that we were going to have graduates straight out of uni with no experience and we were going to have to kind of bring them in as quickly as possible and get them up and running. Um, and we knew that we were going to be sending people home at night to work within, um, sorry, to, to homes that, you know, where, where people were quite literally traumatised by what had happened. And so we knew that this was a potential for a perfect storm. And so what we did was um, we deliberately decided to work with places like the Red Cross New Zealand, University of Canterbury, um, resilient organisations, the All Right team. And we decided to, I guess, work in collaboration with them to look at how could we draw the latest um, science into the work that we were doing and also how could they learn from us too. So there was an awful lot of interviewing of each other and uh, looking at um, you know, tangible things that we could do within the workplace in order to deliberately design well-being. I was invited to talk at a conference about what we'd done um, and during that discussion there was somebody in the audience who was um, representative of a, of a a, a bookseller, no, a, a publishing house. Um, and she came to talk to me afterwards and said, would I like to um, turn that into a book? Um, and to cut a very long story short, um, that's really where the, the idea for these resilient foundations came from. And um, what we found was that um, resilience from a personal level within that study space um, came from four very specific sources. Um, Source Fund was a platform of emotional honesty. So we needed our teams to be very conscious of what do they feel like on a good day? What do they feel like on a not good day? And how do they more quickly notice the difference between the two? Um, and what we what we quickly recognised was, was that um, that wasn't necessarily something that comes easily to people. So we had to help them to understand, for example, different words for emotions. You know, I distinctly remember one lovely engineer who has my permission to share this story um, coming up to me in a workshop and saying, look, I'm an engineer. I'm either happy or sad. Um, I don't really understand. <laughs> Occasionally angry, but I'm not quite sure why I need to understand my emotional state. Um, but once he'd gone through the process of exploring that emotional baseline and um, he felt it was really helpful for him both in understanding himself his team and interestingly his family as well so that baseline of emotional honesty gives us a sense of what do we feel like in a good on a good day and um and for some of us um that emotional um feeling is harder to tap into than others um, and so again just really sort of helping helping teams to to notice that um, and and have that as their platform um, if we imagine then that when we're on a good day we are a battery full fully charged we're at 100 percent so we're what we call in the green um, what we can then do is notice if that battery starts to dip so if, for example, um, our battery goes to 80%, we might say that's a yellow battery. If it goes to 60% or 50%, we might say that's a bit of a getting brown battery. And if it hits 
30%, 20%, we might say that's actually a red battery, that's, that's really not helpful. Um, and so when we notice that our battery is not green, we can choose to invest in recharging. And the recharging came from the three other foundations. And those foundations were number one, self-care. Um, and that's more than what I, what I call food, fitness, and a sprinkle of yoga. Um, it's really tapping into what do you need to grow and recharge. You know, for, for, I was literally on a phone call this morning with a leader who's introduced the most beautiful question into his meetings. He literally just asks people in his team, what is it that you need to anchor, you know, what do you anchor to, to recharge? Just one thing. And, and when he went around the, the room, he realized that for one person it was running, for another person it was lunch with the kids, and for another person it was an early night, and for another person it was um, going to church. You know, these are all very, very different ways that we can look after ourselves to recharge without giving ourselves extra on our, oh, everybody does yoga, I must do yoga. Everybody colors in, I must color in. So it's very much about noticing what, what is right for you and then how do you see that as a way to actually get back into green, not wait till you hit red and then you've got time to do it. So it's very, very, we found it was very, very important to kind of notice that difference. Second, second way that we can recharge um, is to look at our connections. So this is the third foundation for resilience. Um, and connections is very much about who who do we kind of who do we hang out with and and what how how do they help us or harm us? Um, uh, because the reality is that for some for some of us in workplaces, um, we we might need to make different choices about whether we're hanging out with people who are refueling us and helping us to. And get back to feeling good and functioning well um, or whether we're hanging out with office dementors you know the, the people in the in the workplace that just really aren't aren't um, feeling good and functioning well themselves and like to kind of take it out on other people so again you know these are this is a very 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 high level overview of these foundations um, and the connections piece um, with it being very work related, um, we also found that connections was about networking. So the strong, the most resilient of the people that we worked with um, were already connected with people so that if they needed to, they could phone up easily and say, hey, Bob, we've got this question we're trying to resolve. I was wondering if you can help rather than, hey, Bob, you don't know me. I've never met. I've been a bit nervous about phoning you not sure if you're the right person to talk to you know, so again connect strong connections really really important and that's for receiving as well as giving and so um kindness um towards connect our existing connections was very strong in that space um and then the final piece of the jigsaw the, the fourth um so we've got emotional honesty, we've got self-care, we've got connections. And the fourth one was learning. Um, and we really found that learning is one of those um, sort of pieces of the puzzle that can sometimes get lost whenever we're stressed. We're kind of so busy focusing on achieving something that we forget to look outside and think, first of all, has anybody achieved this before and done it well? In which case, what might we be able to learn to fast track our journey? Um, or secondly, who might be able to come on that journey with us to, to help us? Um, so um, sort of bearing all of those things in mind, those, those were the four parts of the, um, of the resilience framework. 
It's a very complex and comprehensive framework, isn't it? And I can imagine, it's interesting to hear that because I can imagine there's lots of myths that are associated with resilience. I wonder if you could talk to some of those. One of the most beautiful myths that always blows my mind is that I'm going to confess, make a confession here now. I was born in the early 1970s. Um, When I was born, resilience was something you either had or you didn't have. And if you spoke to your science science teacher or your doctors, that's exactly what they would say. Um, so, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, one of the big myths is something that you either have or you haven't got. You know, some of us do have a base level that's different. Um, and so that kind of, um, you know, can, can make quite a significant difference to where we have to start from. Uh, I lived in Edinburgh for eight years and I know my Scottish friends will be absolutely fine with me saying that they describe themselves as doer Scots. So, you know, the, the, the word doer is about, you know, they're a bit miserable, you know, a bit glass, glass half empty to start with. So to, for them to grow resilience might be a little bit harder. But we've got this lovely space in the middle that's called adaptive resilience, which is is the space that we can actually grow anytime should we wish to do so. And um, the, the, I think the idea of resilience is is can be quite complicated simply because it's so personal for everybody. But what really strikes me as quite intriguing is that the reality of resilience is that we can we can kind of do it quite simply. If we notice that we're not feeling like a good version of ourselves, you know, feeling good and functioning well, then we can just ask ourselves, you know, actually, hang on a minute, have I, what have I done to invest in, in recharging recently? Um, and can I perhaps find somebody who makes me feel great and who makes me laugh? That might be reaching out to my connections. Can I go for a run or a walk in the sunshine? Can I do 20 minutes research online to see who, who's done this before and what might I learn from them? So, and, and that can help us to get out of that funk that means that we're, we're just kind of, kind of drifting lower and lower and lower on that battery recharge. Um, one of the reasons that I really love to explore this as a concept in business is because I think we're doing an awful lot of really great work at the red end of the battery and quite rightly so, like, you know, absolutely rightly so. The reality is, though, that what I think we've got an opportunity to do in the business world is to stop people reaching red in the first place. And the way that we do that is we help them to understand what choices are they making through their day that are recharging their battery versus um, the choices that they're making which aren't helpful. Very simple example might be, um, I think last week I was working with a leader who has been working really, really long hours through lockdown um, and who whose philosophy was very much, I just need to book back-to-back meetings, I have to see my team, etc, etc, etc. And then suddenly realised that actually he could go for a walk and have a walking meeting with his phone. Um, so he could actually get out and about and, and get some fresh air and, and exercise for himself while also connecting. So again, it's just looking at giving ourselves permission to do that kind of thing. Well, it sounds like from your experience, actually, yeah, there are some really simple things that we can mm. be doing. And I wonder with your research and with your experience in Christchurch in, and in, on this learning journey, were there some things that surprised you when you were learning about resilience or some strategies you put in place and actually it's the results surprised you? Um, gosh, surprise is one of those words that makes me go, what was enormous? <laughs> and I'm not sure anything was enormous, enormous. It was, um, so I think what, what surprised me the most 
was that people don't seem to get this. Like they get this intellectually and like people read books and they're like, oh yeah, I get that I actually need to do all these things to take care of myself. And yet they still choose six coffees in the morning and V in the afternoon real client um, uh, they still fly in fly out to deliver work and decide that it's going to be healthy to work between 7 a.m and 10 p.m monday to thursday and then fly home and then wonder why their relationships at home are starting to fizzle because they're so exhausted by the time they get home it, I, that's that's probably the bit that really fascinates me the most you know we have this global this global stress epidemic um, and and we can do something. <laughs> so I would love for us all to embrace some of these really simple things and just look at the impact that it could make. Actually, that's a good segue then into the world that we're in now. Because as you mm. said, we had this global pandemic, well, called pandemic, was global uh, epidemic around stress already. And now we have the pandemic. How yeah. do you see in terms of resilience, our response, let's first talk about that. So our response to COVID-19, the lockdown, uh, the stress, what did you see in terms of resilience? Gosh, <laughs> um, that's, see the awkward, the awkward move there. Um, there's an awful lot of, I think, learning to be taken from this. I literally have been talking to a couple of American colleagues about this over the last week. Um, I think, you know, choices like languaging when we look at um, for example the culture we have in New Zealand um, our culture if we think about New Zealand as a culture rather than workplace culture our culture around kindness and compassion and our culture around um, trusting trusting the people in charge um, has I think been really helpful for us in that space um, especially when we look overseas at the, the, at the comparison you can hear I'm not originally from New Zealand and my goodness I think I want to I want to be a Kiwi more than anything now um, and so you know when I think when we look at things from a resilience perspective what I'm going to be really keen to do and I will be and I am connecting in with the University of Canterbury around this is looking at what are the what does the research show us for example about how Christchurch people responded you know are there any measures to look at the training that we've all done you know we've been um, we've spent the last 10 years in an environment with the wonderful All Right team um, talking to us through every medium imaginable about how to build well-being and resilience. The theory is that if you go into something strong, then you get through it stronger than if you go into it with a red battery. Um, and so, you know, I guess the reality is that, that some people will, be, will have been more resilient through that journey than others, regardless of which country that they, um, they, they live in. I just wanted to pick up on that language that you're using around mm -hmm. people feeling strong or coming in with a red battery. That sounds like yeah. a deliberate choice of words. <laughs> Did it? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know what what we what we found in Christchurch is that when your start point is a red battery and things are pretty flat, and then something really awful does happen, um, it's so much harder to get through. Um, when your start point is a green or yellow battery um, and you have more resources, you know what to do to stay strong through that journey, then the chances are, again, I have to be really careful not to make any guarantees, the chances are you can move through hard times much more effectively. I'm happy to use myself as an example, you know, um, 
the reality is for about eight weeks from the start of um, when we first, when the world went totally doolally and you know all of this kicked off, I don't think I was green at all. Um, I think I was lucky to be yellow on a good day. And in fact, there were a couple of days, probably just after we finished launching Kite when I was exhausted and I didn't even want to get out of bed. Um, you know, I would wake up and think, you know, if I read the news, am I going to find that it was all a dream and that everything's okay? You know, I had so many arguments with my gorgeous parents who were over in the UK who were getting such dreadful advice from their, um, from their government. Um, and that really was heartbreaking and hard for me because I've always had a really great relationship with them. And so I was working harder than I've ever had to work to stay focusing on the positive focus on the future, stay hopeful, stay optimistic. And all the time I was thinking, God, if I'm finding this hard, imagine if I'd gone into lockdown without these tools and skills and resources. Um, imagine if I was locked down with someone who didn't love me and who didn't care for me and wasn't kind to me. You know, wow, just, I think it's just been a real eye opener for us. Mm. And I pick up too about that self-awareness. That sounds like that's a really fundamental part of resilience and that emotional honesty and self-care and understanding what you need. That self-awareness, that understanding self, that opportunity to take that reflection. And it's fundamental. So, so I would certainly see self-awareness as foundational. Um, self-awareness isn't something that comes easy to people. And that's one of the reasons that within the book, there's all sorts of different exercises, things like um, the, there's an emotions word list that I designed with a, with a counsellor. Now, there's loads of emotions word lists, emotions word lists, um, tongue twister, out on the internet. So most counsellors and therapists will have worked with this kind of um, uh, tool and resource in the past. But what was what what is quite intriguing is that there are far more words for negative emotions in our world than there are for positive emotions in our world. Um, and so as a result, when you look at an emotions word list online, um, you'll find that there are it's it's loaded. It's loaded with negative words. Um, and what we also wanted to do was show that negative emotions are perfectly normal. Um, and actually feeling anxiety over lockdown is a completely normal thing to experience um, but we wanted to use the emotions table to look at strength of emotions so feeling paralyzed by fear is less um, less helpful um, and as a result we wanted to look at fear as a core human emotion for example and take it from a soft um, a soft state emotion like curiosity and, and learning that's actually a little bit fearful that's wanting to find out more about what's going on um, and then take it through fear as a neutral state through to you know being absolutely paralyzed and horrified and um, all of those really really extreme words and um, but getting comfortable with talking about feelings isn't something that comes naturally um, but having spent 10 years in construction um, I am quite confident that people can do it <laughs> um, with support and with encouragement um, and with practical, practical tools and resources to get them there. And if we could pick up on that, what were some of the strategies that you got to? I'm thinking of that engineer again <laughs> who had the black and the white. <laughs> Totally. Um, so we did. Um, so we did lots of workshopping, um, as as you might imagine. We obviously there was a team of coaches that supported leaders, 
Um, and so it was very much a kind of a, a dual factor approach. So looking at how do we help, if, how, do we, how do we share information with everybody? And I think that's one thing that within the world of work, we sometimes kind of, I don't know, I've, I've noticed that we do a lot of training for leaders. Um, and I worry that what that does in the wellbeing space is it takes leaders who are usually the, often the most stressed of everybody because they've kind of got the people at the top and the people underneath that they're trying to kind of somehow kind of pull together. Um, and then it makes them responsible for knowing the resilient, uh, knowing the, the, the emotional intelligence type stuff. Um, it's really important that they have it because obviously the person that's leading you has you know one of the biggest impacts on your sense of well-being at work because it's who you're talking to every day who makes you feel heard who listens to you who guides and supports you um, but the reality is is that we found that by making training available for everybody there was a shared experience and a shared language and it meant that leaders could then reinforce the learning um, in team events um, or in team conversations or one-to-ones. So we had, you know, we went from, I'm just trying to think on my feet because it was 10 years ago now, really, but um, yeah, things like, you know, group group workshops where we put everybody through emotional awareness workshops and, and learning about how to articulate, they talk about big emotions, that kind of stuff, um, recognize emotional state in other people. And, um, you know, you don't have to, you know, we're not all turning into clinical psychologists because that would be completely irresponsible, but just noticing that, for example, Sarah is normally really talkative in meetings and she loves sharing ideas, but the last couple of meetings, she's just been really quite quiet. What might I like to say to Sarah or notice with Sarah to let her know that I've seen her, I've heard her, and I'm here if she wants to talk. So that kind of stuff. And so we had, um, we had uh, that approach. We had a whole team of people trained in uh, much more, much deeper skills so we went through psychological first aid training with the New Zealand Red Cross and um, we also had one-to-one um, -one meetings and um, so some or some organizations one I think used to call it the oil check or something so it was a very you know very strong kind of um, alliance with construction and so they check their oil regularly in their machinery so can we check the oil levels um, in our in our people and it was all very much a well-being check-in to find out how people were doing Sounds really comprehensive and quite an interesting way of trying to get these topics that might feel quite foreign into an industry and, and trying to get them to become normal. Um, and again, I'm, I'm thinking about that language that you're using to the oil. That's such a, a great metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. I work with the um, I work with the dairy industry as well, and and they've really embraced the concept of the four foundations, but they call them tankers. Um, and so they look at how full is your tanker in each of these four foundations. Um, you know, what have you done to invest in your tanker or are you just taking out from your tanker constantly? In which case, no wonder you feel frazzled. So, um, so yeah, it's been, um, it's, it's quite a whole kind of, it's quite a, a neat analogy to kind of um, adapt to whatever industry you're in. That's quite clever. So as long as you have the foundations at the bottom, you can use communication to make it accessible for everybody. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'd say we haven't, we haven't talked about this bit, but the, the let's talk stuff that I've just, um, 
just put together, which I'm still finding my way through, but I'm delighted that we've got a North Island Council that's decided that they want to uh, to take this forward and, and train their HR team. So it's a series of six programs, uh, six programs, six workshops that literally takes the concepts of the book and brings it to life. Because let's be honest, not everybody likes reading self-help books. Um, and the reason that it's called Let's Talk Resilience at Work is because of the fact that, um, you know, I think there's an opportunity for us to really get more comfortable at talking about this stuff um, uses a coaching approach so people get to um, explore some of the things that we're all talking about today and make them real for themselves um, and um, and then gives sort of managers and leaders some questions to, to use to embed some of the learning within their teams. Fantastic and I wanted to pick up now again coming back to the COVID environment yeah. what lessons can we learn from Christchurch that we could be putting in place now? Yeah, lessons from Christchurch. Gosh, where do we where do we start? So, um, so I think you know one of the the biggest things that I was reflecting on before I came on this call was, it sounds really cliche, but the marathon, not the sprint. Um, you know, the reality is that what the um, what the science found um, from Christchurch was that we will find mental no not mental will 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 have well-being waves um, and so you know during lockdown you will have noticed people within your teams behaving in different ways um, some of them might have gone a little bit manic and a little bit kind of action focused some of them might have completely withdrawn some of them might have frozen some of them might have um, sort of roll their sleeves up and gone right okay we've got this you know these are all very very different responses in fact i literally i work with a north island um dhb who's come up with this concept of covid personalities <laughs> and they're using kind of covid personalities um as a kind of um conversation piece and they're making it fun to then use it as a launch pad to say look we've all had this really super stressful experience and we've all realized that actually well-being is slightly more than whether we eat apples and go for a run every now and then. Um, and so they're kind of using this as a platform to say, which, which of these personalities can you identify with? Um, and, and how do we help you all going forwards? Um, so, um, so yeah, what that would be um, certainly one of the, the recommendations. Um, another recommendation would be to expect strength. I think one of the things that we really learned from Christchurch was that not everyone falls to pieces and becomes a bimbling mess um, after an event like this. Post-traumatic growth is a thing. Um, and so, you know, we can expect some people in our team um, to, to grow stronger, to come back from, from lockdown with ideas, the things that they'd like to um, do more or less or move into. Um, and so how can we as wellbeing practitioners support either the HR teams or the leaders or whoever our customers are, how can we support them um, in, in nurturing what the version of people that comes back to work? Um, same message over and over. So yes, yeah, so that's another learning. Um, can seem a little bit boring sometimes to think, you know, but I've told people, we've told people that that's the EAP number. We've told people that they need to, you know, take time out at lunch. We've told people that they need to go home when it's home time and take a holiday. Um, you know, but, but tell them and tell them and tell them again and tell them in different ways. Talk to the people that aren't doing it to find out what's stopping them. So that that way, if there are blocks in the organization that we're not aware of and um, we can find out from from people who are um, not doing the things that we'd like them to do 
Um, and I, the, the final message was to look at how we reinforce messages of success and hope within our business. Um, so some of the most successful organisations that I worked with um, during that time, and by success, I'm defining that as with people working there who were thriving, psychologically thriving. Um, they were largely organisations that focused on sharing thank you, message from thank you messages from customers, took their employees out to look at the impact of the re rebuild work that was being done. Um, you know, so really focusing on the positive stuff because by golly, we're going to get plenty of negative stuff from the press, um, from the media, from our brains. <laughs> um, so how can we start to override that? And one of the things I'm picking up from there, it almost sounds like having a plan in place would be a you know, communications plan, perhaps, or just making sure we pick up on those important points. Yeah, totally. The comms teams are the ones that are usually hugely skilled in this space and who can help us. If you're lucky enough to work within an organisation that has a comms team, I would suggest, yes, absolutely, um, get, in, get in touch with them and help them, to, help them to help you to pull together a plan that covers every spectrum of that battery. You know, what's our plan for the red people? You know, where can they go for help? How do we want leaders to support them? And um, what's our plan for the orange, for the orange, for the yellow or the um, or the brown people? What's our plan for the green people? How are we going to continue to notice them so that they don't um, just sort of burn out? Um, because again, that is another, um, I guess, learning was that about 15 to 18 months after significant events in Christchurch, we saw a, another wave of of, um, of well-being issues. So it's very much about tapping into um, places like the Mental Health Foundation who have got all of this research um, and looking at what's our plan. Let's put together a six-month plan, a 12-month plan and a two-year plan um, for the people who are in each of those, um, I'm going to say colour zones, but I don't really want to say that because it's a bit kind of boxy. <laughs> I think it's a, it is a useful framework, isn't it, to come back to and kind of think where where am I and knowing that it's a each is a transient space. It's not you are this or you are that it's i'm at that point at this point in time yeah yeah and picking Absolutely. up on the oh sorry i was gonna pick up on the um that expect strength i thought that was such a great take-home message as well i wonder if you could talk a bit more to that yeah so i think the expect strength thing is that what we what I, I keep saying what we learned in Christchurch and that sounds hugely grand and sounds like I'm kind of representing the city which I'm not um, but from my from my work and write my research my client base um, which includes researchers um, and academics in the city and um, what was fascinating was this realization that we are stronger than we think we are and it's when we're put under significant stress and pressure that we realize just how much we can um, navigate um, and I'm not even saying like tolerate or put up with but actually navigate doesn't have to be all horrible um, and so you know what we really noticed was that you know the unprecedented levels of kindness of compassion um, of you know reaching out to support each other um, unbelievable pride um, you know these are all not none of these are words that I would associate with somebody who was suffering from clinical distress and um, obviously I'm not diagnosing anybody but I it was very much about noticing that we're hardwired with our brains negative bias we're hardwired to focus on the people that aren't doing well but actually there will be people that come through this and who really surprise you with what they step up to achieve 
And so can we make it our business to somehow notice them as well and, and recognize them so that we're looking, I don't mean recognize financially or anything like that, but I mean, you know, can, what can we do to really encourage and nurture and celebrate um, people who come through this with strength and um, while also recognizing that we don't want to polarize people you know you're you're red therefore you know that's your plan you're green therefore that's your plan so it's kind of like it, how do we how do we and I think this is the philosophical question for us to reflect on how do we with our well-being cultures that we all have in our organization how do we just notice people nudge people who are um, you know not quite green and then look at those who need help um, so that that um, notice nudge and need help can be quite a good analogy to work with. It's a really strong analogy. I wanted to also just turn it on its head and we've had this question come up in some of the other webinars mm -hmm. around people who were going through COVID-19 and they might have been in positions where there was a lot of adrenaline. They were either in, in medical roles, they were in yeah. um, essential service roles and yeah. for a lot of them it was perhaps a career defining moment because their skills were drawn on and they were putting a huge amount of energy. So for them, there's this part of a come down now, if you like, you know, stepping away from that. I know in New Zealand, perhaps in other parts of the world, they're not there yet, but in terms of resilience, what does that look like now for them? I think it really does depend on the person. Um, so, you know, as an example, as, as I said, I work with one of the North Island DHBs and what they've shared is that they've got quite a few people with real FOMO. So, you know, they, they've got this huge, um, hugely experienced medical population that got ready for something enormous um, and that, that never eventuated. Um, and so, you know, we're really amped up and really ready to go. Um, but because we didn't, thankfully, um, experience the horror um, that some other countries in the world have experienced, um, the people within those medical teams weren't able to use the skills that they have, you know, really wanted to, to draw on. So um, I, I don't think there's a a one-size-fits-all answer for that, Sarah. I'll just come back to the, the battery analogy. You know, noticing who in your team um, is performing and how are they performing. Um, you know, the clues are in the feeling good and functioning well. You know, do, is somebody who normally does a great job not doing a great job anymore or vice versa? Um, or is somebody who normally presents one way um, presenting in a different way? Um, and, and what conversations do we need to have with them? And thinking about the, the group here and, and them leaving today and thinking, right, well, resilience is probably something we need to work on in our business. And you've, you've given us lots of amazing tips and strategies along the way. But are there perhaps two or three points that you would want to share with the group around you know, what to do next? What I like to talk about is the three E's of resilience. Um, so if we're, whenever we're looking at resilience as a concept within organization, e, E1 is evidence. So what evidence do we have within our organization um, of existing well-being and resilience? So this is looking at um, data. So things like sickness records, absence records, holiday records, performance um, performance records you know what what evidence do I have within my organization that causes me to um, to think that we need to do something with well-being um, because the reality is that you you are already doing well-being and you are already doing resilience and um, so starting to look at the the data to see what that's showing you about how you're doing it um, can be a good starter um, the next E is empower um, so how can you empower your teams to actually know more about the science 
of well-being and resilience so that when they have a stressful day they don't just go home and reach for the chocolate and the wine and binge watch Netflix I know I've done that plenty of times um, and I hadn't realized just what a addictive and um, unhelpful <laughs> strategy it was um, and then the third E um, is about embedding what are we doing in our organization to embed well-being conversations embed well-being um, measures and reporting so um, if, the, if we can think about those three E's I think that that can be quite a helpful kind of take home because one of the fun things was that um, I've had conversations with people in the past that you know they want they want the way to do well what's the way to do well-being how do I do well-being and the reality is that's like saying can you can we all have the same vision statement the same mission statement the same culture in workplaces it's not possible your culture dictates your well-being already so by looking at the measures you have that'll help you to reflect on what what is how is our culture helping or harming our existing well-being strategy and then what can we do to help people um, understand looking after themselves while also looking at ways to embed it um, into the conversations um, that we have at work. So I had one more question for you Catherine which yeah. is our, our favourite one that comes up every time uh, which uh -oh. is if people are thinking great that sounds really good and I want to go away and do those three E's I like the three E's um, but I want to get my leaders on board and they're still trying to understand what this whole well-being piece is yeah what what strategies would you suggest for them what strategies oh, that's a really tricky one because I think leaders themselves if you think about it are often the barometer of well-being within organizations I've got this theory that I've never tested that stress trickles down um, and I do think that you know if you've got a leadership group um, the best way is kind of thinking about divide and conquer so look within that group as to who actually understands some of these ideas um, and and gets that well-being is a um, is a is an important thing to consider and how can you use them and leverage them um, to talk to the others um, you may find that you need to um, really personalize things and 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 start with teams that um, that really buy into this idea because what will soon happen is that other teams will look at that team and think hang on a minute how come they seem like they're enjoying work more or they're more productive or their absence rates are changing and shifting and they seem to be um, you know performing better at work um, I think the reality is that some organizations I've, I've worked within some organizations and I've actually walked away from the organizations um, because you know the organization has said to me look we really want to embed a well-being culture, but the reality is, you know, that they are taskmasters. You know, they don't, you know, they work around the world. They demand that people, um, you know, um, take calls all hours. You know, just quite hideous cultures that actually really shocked and surprised me in New Zealand and in, you know, 2020. Um, but they exist. And so I think the reality is for some organizations, well-being is going to be a much, much harder um, ask um, than for other organizations. And that's very much driven um, from, from the top. Really interesting. And I was picking up, so it sounds like having a sponsor, a sponsor leader within the executive team or whoever is at the top is a useful way to uh, yeah. start engaging uh, with that group. 
Absolutely. At, at, at least that's the late, that's the latest that I can come up with. Um, you know, where I where I look at organisations that have um, introduced wellbeing programmes most successfully, it has been with full support from the top and not just stand up and saying yes, wellbeing is really important to us. People are are prized possession. Um, and you know all that stuff but actually sharing stories of well-being actually walking their talk actually going and talking to people um, and celebrating success and challenging behaviors that are not um, helpful of, of well-being you know, I, I've, I've sat in a in a meeting literally in an organization that um, was you know they were looking at their high performers and they were doing their annual review where they look at who we're we promoting and they were having conversations like you know Bob always um, works really late works loads of weekends really committed to the firm let's promote him and I'm like okay so let's let's correlate this with your well-being um, program which is about um, boundary management <laughs> about looking after ourselves you know, you're saying that's important and you're, you're promoting a very different kind of behavior I get that it's not that simple, but that's a very simple example of, of where I've seen well-being programs undermined by leadership decisions. Mm, it's that important walk the talk, isn't it? It has to, as you said, it has to start from the top and, and have leaders role model what that looks like. And I guess almost the parting thought might be, you know, now for leaders in terms of resilience and picking up on those four points you talked about earlier, the emotional honesty, the self-care, the connection and learning. If mm. leaders could demonstrate what that looked like now, that would be pretty powerful for those organisations and how they recover. That would be amazing. And, you know, I, so my, my background was in the engagement space. We used to do a lot of work in engagement. And it was one of the reasons I found myself in wellbeing was because I felt that was a piece of the jigsaw that was missing. You know, organisations really do mostly get engagement and the fact that when you've got engaged employees your productivity is higher so that impacts the bottom line great we've got some ROI um, but one of the interesting things is that I started to notice that some of the most engaged people in workplaces were actually not feeling good and functioning well um, and uh, as a result I saw there's an opportunity for us to look at what part does well-being play in supporting engagement because I think well-being is one of the kind of silver bullets i guess for engagement and one of the silver bullets for well-being is leaders that listen <laughs> that care <laughs> that actually want to lead through tough times rather than just when it's kind of cruisy um, leaders who are comfortable at sharing feedback in a positive strength focused supportive way you know these are all of all of the really great um, practices that contribute to designing a really strong well-being culture and um, which is why it's so difficult for a well-being professional to say follow this list do it in this order and you'll have a great well-being culture thanks again for listening today it's been great to have you along if you're keen to join the wellness champions network head along to myhealthrevolution.co.nz and follow the links to subscribe. If you're in the network, thanks again and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.